entering the takeout, placed together when the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and I'm here with my co-host and managing editor of takeout.com, Andrew Wyatt. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Today we are processing Magic Mike's last dance of Max Havy's pick for the Gems of 23 program. First, we're doing now showing a bunch of movies. And after Magic Mike's last dance, we'll have one more thing. It's the end of the year and we are being fucking assaulted, but honestly, in the best way possible. Fire hosed in the face with movies this year. Yeah, I don't know if you, I mean, you've been in a critics group, the critics group we're both in. Don't want to get too inside there but i've been in it for like four four or five years i don't know but this is the year that's felt the most overwhelming to really me. and i think that's just there's a glut of new releases at the end of the year and stretching into 24 i'm behind this year i'm i'm for for various personal and professional reasons i basically have dialed back my film viewing so i feel like i'm actually sort of unprepared to talk about 2023 in review or under let's say underprepared compared to the average film critic uh so i'm a little yeah but you're I saying like, that with like 100 films logged and you're like <laughs> right but 100 is a lot is light year for me 200 yeah. is a pretty typical 200 to 250 movies a year is pretty typical for me so i feel like this year i'm just way behind but i have good reasons for that so i, I guess i shouldn't feel too bad about it yeah you you're very busy and i've been very busy just watching this movies. crap <laughs> Let's start with one we have both seen, which I believe to be one of the best films made ever mm-hmm. of the year, certainly. I, I, there's no easy transition to the zone of interest. This mm-hmm. is Jonathan Glazer's latest film, his fourth film, stretching over what about 25 years of work now. This is his follow-up to Under the Skin, a film that has been kind of canonizes one of the great films of the past decade. Because it is. Because it is. Yes. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> I I think this is yet another one of mm. those. And I can see where there's some stickiness with it because it is a film that's adapted kind of from the novels. Very loosely. Yeah. Yeah. From what I understand that that novel has more of like a central love story to it. But what he's taken from it, the narrative is set at the commandant of the Auschwitz prison camp Mm -hmm. in his home and with his family, locked in with them as you are experiencing their version of the Holocaust as the prison camp uh, rings screams and and bullet fire over the wall. Mm-hmm. It reminded me quite a bit of what Scorsese and Roth and all of his collaborators are doing with Killers of the Flower Moon in resting their narrative about atrocity with the perpetuators mm-hmm. and trying to determine what the process is of doing that. And to me, what I get from it is the the kind of numbing glee with which evil can be done. I mean, I mean, you know, it's art and all this banality yeah. of evil and all of that, but I've never had anything 
bring me so close. There's one hallmark that I'll touch on is that, and that's uh, Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence, mm-hmm. uh, which is film I think has a direct dialogue with it at one moment in particular. Of course, I think with that, you're going to have some folks talking about, you know, Jojo Rabbit <laughs> and the way that film was also doing the same thing um, in situating you with Nazis. Of course, Jojo Rabbit is also like, I don't know, the Sandlot or something and and felt uncomfortable for many reasons that this film feels is a very uncomfortable watch, but not in it. To me, it didn't feel politically wrongheaded to do something like this. No, it's a film that I'm still wrestling with a little bit to feel not so much because whether I like it, um, I love it, actually, but the feeling how it fits within Blazer's filmography and how it mm. fits within Holocaust cinema in general, which is sort of, you know, its own genre at this point. I'm, I'm, I hate to say that, I don't want to sound glib about this. When it comes to Holocaust cinema, I like feeling invigorated by new approaches. I yes. feel like in the last 20 years, like I can count on one hand, the number of films it's probably really just this and son of Saul, which are films that I feel like gave us the Holocaust, not just from a quote unquote new perspective, but figured out a new entry point into the Holocaust film as a genre and, and found new things to do and new things to say within that. Um, this one has that sort of glazer chilliness but almost ramped up to the sort of there's a lot of like hard angles hard right angles in this it plays like a paranormal activity film like and i'm not saying that as a joke it does feel like surveilling this family in their home there's there's a little bit of a of a kubrick sensation to me as well in the sense that so much of the film is is like medium to wide shots we don't get a lot of great close-ups of the characters and wide angle lenses Yeah. yeah done in sort of flat flat compositions of big panoramic views there's a there's images in this film that are going to stay seared into my brain for a long time the the image of the family playing in the garden with the swim their little 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 swimming pool in the jungle gym and everybody at their garden party and we've already been attuned at this point in the film when this happens we've already been attuned to sort of watch above the wire watch above the wall for any glimpse of what might be happening beyond but there's just this image of the train pulling in and we don't see the train. All we see is the mobile plume of smoke, right sort of a storm cloud over the horizon. And been thinking about that just completely arresting visual. And then the detail in the story of objects, coveted objects that have been sort of rare wartime rarities come to the family shortly after that train arrives. See, and we, we have to put it together in our heads that these are the items, these are the possessions of the people who were offloaded from the train and processed. The film doesn't give it that to us. We have to put that together into our heads. I'm still wrestling with how I feel about sort of like the the, the photo negative night sequences that sort of function as both fair sort of fairy tale counterpoints to the things that are happening inside the house household and as kind of like maybe dream sequences. It's kind of implied that the the younger daughter is having like sleepwalking slash dream sequences that are dovetailing with things that are actually happening outside the camp. I'm a, little, I'm a little hazy yeah. on that. M- much like the the artifacts that you're talking about and trying to piece together a narrative, there are pieces 
of narrative in this. There's mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of intrigue towards the end, and there's a, a few implications that people are in on a narrative that we're not we're not privy to. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's all sort of the point is to have the remove and <clears throat> to have that kind of distance. There's a there's some kind of resistance narrative that's happening slightly, not 100 percent, but slightly out of our viewpoint. Yeah, it's it's either like a resistance narrative or the way that you've learned this character played by Sandra Huller, who is the film. I think, you know, just an aside, why is she being campaigned as supporting? That's the film. She's the film. Know. Anyway, Sandra Huller, who's having one fucking heck of a year here playing the ambiguously terrible people. And this one, she's a terrible fucking person. But what is ambiguous about it is what's making her tick. And th there's the investment in that character is interrupted constantly by a gunshot sound um by something she'll say i could have you turned into ash and spread across this desert mm -hmm. it's not a film like even as we're talking about it i'm kind of i'm kind of overwhelmed mm -hmm. i'm kind of overwhelmed by it and the experience of it to it's not a film to go into lightly i don't i don't think i no. can like just gush about this film and recommend it to everybody it's, no. a, it's a challenging film not not in the sense that it's hyper arty it isn't really that outside yeah. the formally it's not yeah. that outside out of out of what people are experienced with experience with with art house but it does have a kind of i don't know intensity the last five minutes i think are some of my i'm not sure how it fits into the overall like top 10 top 20 list for me of 2023 but the last five minutes of this movie might be like the best five minutes of 2023 for me i yeah. would probably i don't even know how to describe i don't want to spoil I... it but i don't know how to describe it but it, it feels like both documentary and a horror film take over the movie for the last the whole thing. five minutes. Yeah, the, well, the whole thing feels like that to me and that the perspective it, it puts the, the rest of the film in is, again, similar to what Scorsese does at the end of Killers of the Flower Moon in putting that so much of our historical perspective, putting the onus on us experiencing it and sort of allowing it to infiltrate parts of us that will that we take with us for repetition mm -hmm. and it seems that this movie was made with an urgency that i experienced uh physically and yeah it's really it's hard for me to talk about and it's it's i think a vital piece of work vital piece of art um that i haven't seen like this year over in a long time and you know it's hard to say that this is oh this is my favorite blank or like you know this is my in my top three or what I, I you know I don't know it just sets itself outside of the thing and I guess maybe I'm doing the thing and putting it in the the glass case I, I, I don't know it's something that I'm gonna take with me forever I think all right we got it we gotta shift gears please <laughs> just for a moment and Wonka, can I bring up Wonka for a second? I haven't seen did it, you, so I'm I'm relying on you here. Did you know Wonka is a wall-to-wall -wall musical? I did not realize that. It is a wall-to-wall -wall musical. Is that conveyed by the trailers? I don't know. Not at all. There are like <laughs> a couple shots of Chalamet, like 
in this Busby Berkeley thing. And you think, oh, there must be a fantasy sequence. No, this fucking thing is a musical, like proper. And it's I it's just interesting because I think Warner Brothers, who's behind this and the color purple, mm-hmm. are like in this conundrum about Wonka and the color purple about not selling them as mm-hmm. musicals. And the color purple being an adaptation of the Broadway musical that Fantasia Barino, who also stars in Color Purple. So I just kind of wanted this corner to be like, do y'all just really hate musicals? Is that a thing where we can't sell as they are? Well, I mean, some of that is chicken and egg question, right? Is it is it that people don't like musicals or is it that? Studios think people don't like musicals, and therefore, and therefore it becomes a self self fulfilling prophecy. They don't market them properly. They they don't sell them. They don't hype them up part the way they should. I mean, the story two years ago, right, was like the fa- the the economic failure of West Side Story, a canonical musical by a one of the A list directors of America can't get can't make its money back at the box office that was presented on the that was kind of hoisted onto the public as if it was their fault which would never really sat right with me and that um, was a really bad timing too they had delayed it right. a year because of covid and things weren't right for west side story to be able to make its money back but if you think just a few years before that we're talking about the greatest showman being this like Cats was huge. Cats is terrible and it was huge. Cats made money. Like, so I I don't know the whole thing. I don't know. It feels very homophobic to me. (laughs) I'm I'm being a little glib and funny there, but hey, these movies, pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. I I did I did not know that the color per I knew that the color purple was musical, and I did not know that it was an adaptation of the Broadway show, not a Mm -hmm. readaptation of the novel. Yeah, I think the tagline is it on it is um the bold new take on a classic. And I I saw that somewhere and turned to someone and said they can't just call it the musical. Mm-hmm. But they're both proper throwback song and dance musicals, hmm. with, you know, really invigorating camera work. I think Wonka is the better film. Wonka is an original musical, which I guess is to its advantage. The Color Purple has this kind of like dissonant tone to it because it has such a familiar story, not only because of Alice Walker's novel and Steven Spielberg's film, but then the musical itself and it sort of disseminating itself through culture and all of these kind of touchstones that are specific to it. It has a problem there, but it is really lively and kind of lovely movie that I'm afraid is going to get marketed incorrectly. going to get this like terrible cinema score and then people write on that because of the, you know, the upending of expectations, but they should look at the cast and be like, Oh, Fantasia Barino is, (laughs) you know, Fantasia Barino is the lead of this, so we should probably know she's going to sing and dance at some point. But everyone in that cast is doing really... Coleman Dem- I mean, there are people, people a lot of crossover with Black Broadway, Coleman Domingo. It, like, it it looks like the pedigree is good. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, another thing is it's it's got digital trying to look as golden age Hollywood and, and therefore comes across as like garishly ugly to me, which is a kind of a disappointment. It it looks like a Netflix original. It is not, uh, but they're but they're both. Yeah, these are 
straight up musicals and folks should know that and they're good i'm superior i'm i'm I, honestly the most surprising thing for me to hear is that wonka is good <laughs> oh, oh so we didn't even talk about it yeah and i'm like i'm a few days removed from it so it's already in my head wonka good but wonka good wonka is is funny i i laughed i cried i tapped my foot like this thing had me pretty immediately. Timothy Chalamet is not doing a Gene Wilder. He is doing his own take on it that you could kind of see how this young Wonka could become that. But he is light on his feet and smart. And it, it is has... he doing his own singing? Yes. Oh, wow. And that's the part where it's like, he's very clearly not, you know, for the back row belter, but he is a good singer. He is a good singer. And it has the same kind of mischievous, you know, cynical side eye to it that Dahl has in all of Roald Dahl, the the writer of Charlie and Charlie. Yeah, that was maybe my biggest question. Is is this more Paddington 2 or is it more Roald Dahl in terms of tone? Well, don't forget that Paddington 2 has this streak about uh, nationalism in it. Right. And I think that's easy to kind of, you know, skirt aside whenever Paddington 2 is this kind of life-affirming fun <laughs> thing. But it it is Paul King, the the Paddington guy. It it's very clearly his film. Now is it it's not Danny DeVito's no. Matilda, is what we're saying. <laughs> yeah, but that's also really good. <laughs> when am I gonna get my big screen adaptation of the twits? Is what I want to know. <laughs> Sooner than later, because that is a whole production company. There's a whole shingle under Warner Brothers for Roald Dahl films oh, okay. that unfolded in front of me, in front of Wonka. Oh, and I was Lord. like, I, brand you know, we're getting an awful lot of that guy these days. Google him, guys. But yeah, so these movies. Um, All right. Oh, let's talk Eileen. Yeah. Have you seen it? So, yeah, we both seen Eileen. Uh, it's a movie, right? Yeah. William Olroyd, Olroyd, who directed the great Lady Macbeth, which was kind of Florence Pugh's like breakout movie, I guess, the movie that at least brought her to the attention of art house audiences, right. if not mainstream yeah. audiences. So I was kind of excited to see what his next movie was. It's fine. <laughs> it's a little. It, it's a little slight. I don't want to say it's slight. It's just I think you're how you feel about it is going to depend a lot on how you feel about the second to third act transition, which is a big. Kayla McCullough wrote an excellent review of it that really gets to the heart of what it feels like. There's literally a push in on a character's face and a sound cue as the movie completely changes subgenres <laughs> between the second and third act. And I didn't know, I still not sure exactly how I feel about it. There's there's some there there. It's very moody. There's a very cool sort of unconventional jazz score for the film and soundtrack. Anne is great. I love Blonde Anne as always. You know, Blonde Anne always does it for me. She's all right. There, the, the period is night like wintry Massachusetts, no, like neo-noir, but neo-noir in the late 50s, early 60s, a little Patricia Highsmith in there. Highsmith. Yeah. Because the whole thing, and this is, it's based on a Tessa Moshfeg's novel, Eileen, yeah. which centers you in the experience of Thomas and McKinsey, and she's playing the, she's playing Eileen, as she has this sexual crush on this older woman. Come on, you know what? The whole thing felt like a joke about Carol to me. And, and then with that third act readjustment, rhetorical shift, it felt even more like a joke about it. And I have the feeling 
I, I've talked to people who've read Eileen and seen the film, and I know I've I've got to catch up on on that book because I do like Mashveg as a as an author. And she, my year of rest and relaxation, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The film that's her that big one feels or the book that feels me the most. For me, there wasn't much there there. Mm. But all of the positives that you point out, like the the setting, the cinematography, the the trappings of Massachusetts around the holidays, and all of that was very intriguing to me. But ultimately, cool setting, like a, I like the set, like the idea of a, of a, the main setting being this sort of boys' prison mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. You know, but yeah, I I didn't get the feel a feeling of like. A, making a joke or contempt towards other films i just i felt like it was maybe maybe slight is a good word now that i think about it if you like this time period and if you like sort of wintry massachusetts noir i, I think it's a passable film but there's something there's something lost in losing the novel fixed fixed view inside the head of eileen that the film kind of tries to do that it uses some fantasy sequences and so forth to try to try to do that but we're not almost not tethered enough inside Eileen's headspace inside her her point of view i feel like we lose the thread of like what the heck she's even thinking in the last third uh-huh. of the movie and therefore it kind of becomes about nothing it's like you're just looking on the outside of a the first person novel and again i haven't read it i don't know if it is that but the whole the pass at it to me um it seemed like there was a, a center that was just completely lost in translation. You know, whether that's true or not, it remains to be seen. I do have a copy of that book. Hmm. Maybe I've also, I just last night caught up with Ferrari, which isn't out yet, but I think it will be by the end of the year. What do we want to say about Ferrari? You know what, man? Because I'm kind of mixed me. on it. I'm you kind of mixed me. on it. I'm a Michael Mann guy. I yeah, like I am too. Michael Mann. I am a defender. I am a Miami Vice guy. I I thought this movie kind of sucked. And I get <laughs> what he's doing. I get this whole like, you know, challenging masculinity and and the the creation of beauty and finding the beauty and the ugly. And I was like, Shailene Woodley is a bad actor. Oh, I'm okay. Like, so this I'm is this is where them. I'm gonna differ from you. I do not understand why everybody's hating on her so bad in this movie. What? I Dude. don't. Like, she can't, like, why did he have, whoever decided that she should try an Italian accent? But she's barely trying. She's not, it's hardly present. It's like a, it's like a a wisp of an Italian accent. I much prefer that to whatever the heck is happening in House of Gucci. I mean, like, she's not even trying. (laughs) I prefer not trying to trying too hard. I don't want It's a Mia Mario. I don't want Shailene Lily doing It's a Mia Mario. Well, I I want her doing anything because she she gave me nothing go girl give us nothing i can appreciate her sometimes when she's very naturalistic actor whatever that means like she she doesn't really ever play to the hilt but here she seems lost in the whole thing because she's got what about penelope penelope is playing to the hilt okay and i did like her (laughs) is is doing the thing for me she is because that character also calls for it too, because she is such a presence. This is a really weird movie too, in the way that it is structured. It's all structured around leading up to this one kind of annual race mm-hmm. and Ferrari being in this very terrible time of like the sales are really are plummeting. The sales are not good for their cars, but he, as a, as a person, he's only interested in the racing part. 
And the production line is sort of being ran by his wife, who is a co-owner in Ferrari, because it's some kind of like nefarious reasons or some reasons that they did stemming from World War II. Anyway, they glossed over the post-fascist stuff. They didn't really give us the background. Sure but did. this is, but this is one of those biopics that's kind of like doing the let's can let's show just a few days yeah. in the life of a care of a instead of trying to do the cradle to grave biopic. Yeah, I much prefer this method to sort of than to the sort of cradle to grave Wikipedia read. Let me say but, that the script is good. Like Michael Mann is mm, good. Kind but of. I'm saying like. For... The emotionality is is surface level to me in this. Like I get well, I, I get the story emotion the psychology and the emotionality. Yeah, he's a perfectionist, and there's these handful of things that he can't 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 control, like his wife, like his dead son, like the fact that he can't tell his wife about his mistress and his his bastard. Like I get it. The psychology is all surface level, which to me to me strikes me as a very non man thing. Like man should have some more more some more depth to it psychologically. I guess, but I also think that the characterizations would sell you those things that are kind of stock and typical mm. as honest and true, but the performances here are not good. And I think Adam Driver is completely miscast to the point that his presence is distracting to me. He is neither Ferrari. He is not Adam Driver. He is a secret third thing that is much scarier flappy neck man and i was supremely distracted by the subpar effects and the things that i will typically give a pass to a film because of its internal logic or its thematic resonance but for me this was just kind of like a mess and then the thing happens yeah did you not know that thing was coming uh, Fuck no, I did not know that thing was happening. <laughs> We're not going to say what it is. I won't say anything, but if you are a sort of mid-century motorsports guy and you, yeah, alternatively, there is a famous photograph associated with this event. Really? Yeah. Okay. So so like people who are in like sports journalism and people who are like motorsports heads probably know about, if I say the, the, the entire like last half of this movie takes place at the 1957 Millamiglia race, which is like this sort of, Overland, long distance, very prestigious Italian motor, motor race. Um, if I say that, you'll know what's coming. So there is this sort of, I guess if you're not deeply, and I, the only reason I know about it is for incidental reasons, but the only reason I knew about what was coming. But if you don't, if you're not steep in those, those things, there are two, actually two, one happens very early in the film and then one happens later in the film to like the nth degree. There are two really shocking things Horrific. that happened yeah shocking yeah things the, the first felt telegraphed the second i had no fucking clue although i should have known because it is it is quite literally telegraphed yeah so yeah i don't know for me i maybe as i'm not as hostile to it as you i do think it's sort of very mid middling to low tier man for me which you know i i think some of it has to do with how it looks and i feel like there's something very ill-fitting between like let's take the sunny Italian rural countryside, some of the most naturally beautiful, picturesque. It's not exclusively a daytime film, but a lot of it is daytime. Picturesque, naturally picturesque, ancient topography in the world landscape. And let's use like the American auteur most associated with like neon streaked, mournful, melon, urban melancholy. It's just the fit 
doesn't work. And man's working has been working in digital for several years now and digitally filmed sunny Tuscan, sunny, like Italian countryside. Something doesn't work there. Yeah, there's Vis- a weird visually. tension there. And then when when the film really starts to aesthetically wake up is during these racing sequences and you're like, ah, I'm back in really great man territory. Yeah. So um, great, like fisheye, like tethered to the, the grills of these cars. Like there's yeah. some intent. There's, there is like these hits of intense vintage masculine man filmmaking in there. Um, yeah. It does feel surfaces and velocity and power. It, yeah, it feels as if he's if he's cornered into something that isn't easy. That's when it's he's doing his best. Or mm. to where it's like some of these other scenes that are very talky and just kind of shoots coverage, boring. Um, all right, last one, mm-hmm. final kind of biopic Uh-oh. this season is the Iron Claw. That's Sean Durkin's film. Yeah, not the movie I expected from Sean Durkin. It isn't, but how much are you familiar with the family? I know a little bit about the backstory. I haven't seen the film, and but I've heard, I've read some reviews of it. And the reviews are very positive. What do you feel well, about it? it? It does make sense that it's a Sean Durkin movie. Okay. The Durkin-ness of it comes in pretty quickly, and then you might be suspect of that and then by the halfway point you say ah <laughs> i see what he was interested in in this this is the story of the von eric brothers they were in the wrestling federation i didn't i don't have any background in in wrestling as a sport or uh, the wrestling profession other than what i've seen in a few movies right but this is kind of an interesting answer to something like the wrestler mm-hmm. that is like uh aronofsky's Personian, you know, someone finding their like faith in the rigorous practice of wrestling, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, but this family is quote unquote put upon by a curse in which very tragic and terrible things start to pick off members of the family one by one. And they all talk about the curse. But as we are watching it on the outside, we see what. What is really happening is just the, the toxicity of the uh, American individualism and exceptionalism in oh, the beating wow. heart in the family unit. Okay, so, so now I see it. This is yeah. so that's the nest, right? The nest is, is a haunted house movie without an actual supernatural. Uh-huh. Yeah, so he's always kind of done these pseudo thriller horror things, and he's really good at it. And it seems like people want him, like I've heard other critics wanting him to really lean into it when's he gonna do a proper horror movie i'm like that's not what he's interested in even though i i think this is probably i liked martha come on martha macy marcy Murray, may marlene yeah martha marcy may marlene yeah and that movie is actually fucking terrifying and i like the nest marginally more than that I like the Iron Claw quite a bit. I think Zac Efron, who's playing the moral and emotional center of this, is really good. What seems to have happened for him personally fits well within this character. The Holt McElhaney from Mindhunter and has been a great character actor, plays the father, the patriarch of this family. And he's just incredibly, like, 
insidious, but it, it, you could see if that was your father, how you would fall prey to his his kind of perfectionism and practices as he mm. was a failed athlete himself and certainly makes a course correction in trying to control all this entire unit to become like the wrestling family and the American wrestling family and all of that buckling under the pressure and direction. It does have some pretty standard biopicness in it that felt at odds with the other dark and dark tonal areas. But I think maybe he had a point to that that has an interesting tension with the rest of it. And I'm curious if this film, people will go and see it because I can't imagine the word of mouth being (laughs) the film that most recalls is Foxcatcher. And not Mm -hmm. only because of... And I love Foxcatcher, so... Yeah, not only because of the artificial or superficial ties that it has in being about a sport and wrestling. And well, this is like ring wrestling, whereas that's like Olympic wrestling, right? Not only because of that, but because about the the natural dangers of the family unit and mm-hmm. the American exceptional, all, all of this stuff. It, well, it the- treads similar ground in a very different way, in a way that's a lot sneakier than Foxcatcher. The yeah, and I'd argue that Foxcatcher is very much is as much about wealth as it is about family. The 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 line that I've I don't even remember. I'm I, I'm sorry I can't credit the critic, but I read some review of it or an early review of it that said something to the effect of the the father in this movie is like the, a patriarch from a Terrence Davies movie, which I was instantly like, so sold. Yeah. <laughs> an American an American yeah. Terrence Davies patriarch sold. I think we should talk about a family of strippers. I think we should go to a found magic. family of strippers, if you will. Family of males dancing and having a wonderful time. We were here to talk about a lot. We we're to talk about a lot. Max Havy is with us. He of St. Louis Magazine is bringing his pick of Magic Mike's Last Dance. Let's go. So I'm going to put on a show at this famous theater. People are numb, disconnected. We're going to wake them up with a wave of passion they've never felt before. Hell yeah. Without further ado, I give you the visionary artist, Magic Mind. We are on to the, what, the third episode of the Gems of 23 series. We have Max Havy here of St. Louis Magazine. Hi, Max. Thank you for coming on. Thank Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. You have brought the whole gang with you. We've got Magic Mike. We've got Dallas. They're not. They're not. No, we don't. Yeah, no, Tito couldn't make it. Tito was, he had a a Froyo appointment. He couldn't make it today. Yeah, we are not them. But, you know, someday, someday we could be. I don't know. But you have picked Magic Mike. Oh, my God. I almost said Magic Mike XXL because, like, you know, in my wildest dreams, we would be talking about that for three hours. But you've got Magic Mike's last dance. I, I figure it was my best possible. It was like probably my best opportunity to talk about Magic Mike XXL and the broad Magic Mike cinematic universe kind of at large, since it is seemingly sort of the capper to all of that. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's an interesting one. It's an, it's an 
I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll get into it further, but such an interesting piece in sort of Steven Soderbergh's broader filmography. Yeah, it's almost as if everything he does is like, I have to think about this in the framework of Soderbergh's career. And he's sort of actually an anti-autorist auteur to me. Yeah, okay. That was just like a very bold and big statement. And we haven't even gotten into the big thing. So why this year... Tons of stuff. I think we talked about a handful of things. And yeah. we ended up landing on Magic Mike's Last Dance, a film that made very little, had very little footprint anywhere. It feels yeah. like. I mean, I, I agree. It, it, it like it sort of had a lot of kind of mystique around it when I was dropping where it's like, ooh, Steven Soderbergh's gotten back together with Channing Tatum and they yeah. got this last one. It's like it had a theatrical release, which is a, kind of a rarity for those, you know, HBO Max slash Max originals these days. And it kind of just didn't go anywhere. And I think to that degree, like it's one that sort of stuck in my brain. It was one that I sort of, I, I enjoyed when it came out in theaters around, I think Valentine's Day back in like February, but as the year is sort of worn on, it's one that I kind of keep coming back to and sort of when you would ask me and I sent you a whole list of movies that I was thinking of, it was one that kind of jumped back to my brain. That I was like, you know, I think there's maybe more to dig into with that one more so than some of the other picks that I had. Because I, quite honestly, so many of the big movies this year felt like, you know, they're not really underseen gems. But this one really kind of feels like a right under your nose underseen gem that I think a lot of people probably overlooked in like the hubbub of the pre-Oscar buzz back in like February. So I think it's good it, to pull that one out of mothballs here. It also feels as if this movie came out in a different lifetime altogether. <laughs> and and it, just a different cinematic lifetime. We've had so much like Barbenheimer and the just long tail that's had moving into award season and having 1,000 releases. When you mentioned Magic Mike, See, I'm going to keep doing it. His last dance, last dance. It's not XXL. When you mentioned this, I'm like, are we sure that was this year? Are we sure? But no, we did. I reviewed it. I did like a very horny review on KMOV for that. I'm very <laughs> sorry. Apologize to your grandmothers. Andrew, did you see this one this year or just for this podcast? Just now. Yeah. Yeah. I ran the whole series again. I, so I, I revisited one and two and then, and then watched the, or I did it backwards. I watched this one XSL, then the original, which is an interesting experience. <laughs> did, did you have like a memento, like a journey with it? <laughs> no, but I think we, I have things to say. I have, I have things to say. I think oh, we're wow. all in agreement that XSL is the next one, right? Can we just say oh, that? 100%. Yeah. yeah. We just absolutely. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, but here's the, here's the operative question, which is better last dance or the original. I, I'm firmly of the camp that it's Last Dance is over the original, but I've also never particularly been a huge fan of the original. But and that that bore out when I I also rewatched all three of them, albeit not in reverse chronological. I watched it from Magic Mike XXL and then Last Dance over the course of like four nights, and I just found myself being kind of annoyed with the first one, <laughs> knowing that it's sort of there, Why? knowing that it's there for setup. Because, I mean, I saw, X. I think I had actually seen the first Magic Mike and then saw XXL because there's like a whole, there's a whole origin story to me seeing XXL at the great ragtag cinema in Columbia, Missouri in like summer 2017 with basically the crew of Uprise Bakery just whooping and having the best time possible. Maybe, maybe like a top five theater experience seeing XXL. 
but Magic Mike kind of feels like the like kind of grimier, sleazier cousin of that movie in an interesting way. I mean, in yeah, I don't know. It feels like set up, but at the yeah. time, it didn't. It it didn't seem like there w- it was like fruitful for an entire trilogy's worth of films. Oh, yeah. In fact, when XXL was announced, people were like, "Why?" <laughs> yeah. And what we didn't know is that we absolutely needed it, and that it would be a completely different thing. I mean, this is a you know kind of trilogy of three very different films. Yeah. I would say that two and three share the same spirit where the first one is so of its time because it is it is a direct answer to 2008 recession and it's all about kind of economics of trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps <laughs> and the dynamics of the economy of the group and you have this figure in it who is sort of the antagonists but you know on the scale of this film in Matthew McConaughey's character of Dallas who is missing from the next two films because the next two films are not really concerned with that they're Uh, not traditional narratives I push push back against that in that it is about like socioeconomic yeah absolutely i think the i think it's, the whole series is about life living life in the 99.9% of america in these united states in this day and age in the 21st century they take radically different approaches to how to how to process that how to understand it and how to come out the back end with a, with with an answer 3 is I don't know. In some ways, three is the least interesting, but despite being very a very pleasurable experience, it's maybe the least intellectually and socially interesting one to me because it's the one that feels the most. And Max, I, I don't know if I'm like way off base here, but for me, this one feels like the fairy tale of the three. Yeah, you know, I'd agree with that. It has a fairy tale spirit to it that a wish fulfillment aspect that the other ones don't have. Sort of in response to like the seeing it as sort of an arc of like, you know, being in the 99% and sort of like, you know, landing in this fairy tale world. I think I, I coming out of the movie, I sort of saw it as the three movies as sort of an arc for Soderbergh with Magic Mike being the movie, one of like the last movies he made before going into retirement a movie about disillusionment and sort of sort of, you know, falling out of love to, you know, for lack of a better term with this industry that he's sort of grown up in that he sort of sees his value in and kind of can't really see himself growing in further. And then XXL being the movie made during his retirement period that he's not really the director of, but still shot and edited, being sort of the rediscovery for why it sort of worked for him in the first place and sort of rediscovering how he could make it better. And then with Less Dance sort of, you know, finding an unexpected sort of new lease on this like profession that he kind of wanted to leave behind to a degree. I mean, he was still working on TV at the time, but in part due to like temperamental financiers who see potential in him, even if for like just a moment being like, you know, I, I think it's hard not to see Salma Hayek, Max Andra's character as sort of being a stand-in for the types of like billionaires that are running streaming services that are sort of his financiers that are sort of bringing him in. But that might be getting way ahead or way off base at from the conversation no, that we're having right now. No, to that point, I think we should set it up because I think there are really great like creation metaphors in here too. And I think the movie's... Wait a minute. Are we, are very, we saying... Oh, but let's back up. I wanted to back up a minute to process this. Are we saying that Salva Hayek is David Zaslav? That's that how I read it this time around. 
I don't know that Steven Soderbergh and David Zaslav are having a romantic and sexual relationship. <laughs> if they are, please let us know. Someone out there in the fanfic community, start writing it. Because I'll read it just so I can make myself puke, I guess. I don't know. No, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little silly, but that is... I, I'm really fascinated. So that that reading didn't even cross my mind, Max. So that's pretty fascinating to think about. Well, uh, Max, do you mind setting up where we find Mike in this one? You know, the yeah. first one is all about him being this kind of giant figure in Tampa and bringing in this new kid and these forces of old and new and, you know, really to the new kid falling into the bad side of things and I don't know, a more typical narrative about someone entering the entertainment business and the the, the the struggles inherent with them. The second one is a let's put on a musical road trip movie that is like this like sex positive fantasia and one of the great films. And then <laughs> here we are at the third one. So what's Mike up to now? So, I mean, it, it picks up with Mike as sort of a like just being a cater waiter essentially for like rich people still in Florida, still in like Miami, kind of not really sure what he's doing. And interestingly runs into one of the people that he's stripping for in the first movie, which yeah. sort of sets everything in motion where Salma Hayek's character, Maxandra, this like billionaire, like woman who's throwing this big party finds out that he's a dancer and pays him an absurd amount of money to dance for her. And it results in this, like just one of the hottest scenes of the movie of just it's Channing so Tatum and Salma Hayek doing this insane dance around her like beautiful like modern house and she's like sees this potential in him is like I want you to come to London with me and he just kind of goes along with it and it turns into this story of him trying to reinvent this musical Isabel Ascendant is that that's what it's called yeah this 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 failing musical that she you know for this theater that her husband's her ex-husband's family owns to try and revitalize it to like fix the issues with this play and sort of make it his own and so it then turns into him trying to figure that out building this crew of dancers from around the world to make this show to create this show while also kind of dealing with all of her like notes and temperamental like ideas that sort of come about as part of that and so it all culminates in i mean it's not really a spoiler it culminates in this new version of isabel ascendant that is uh, a very magic mike take on all of that I wish this movie had more of that in it. Whereas Magic Mike XXL really does feel like Soderbergh's. And I'm sorry to Gregory Jacobs. I am sorry to this man. I I don't know him. I don't know him. That's Steven Soderbergh's movie. <laughs> in so much it feels like his Vincent Minnelli feels like the bandwagon with extra large dicks. And... And it's quite a bit smarter than just that, but it can be just that. But this one is the behind the scenes and you can see the idea that you're talking about, Max, in it, in that, yes, you can create this metaphor of it, but it's also that the play that they're making is a metaphor for their relationship. It's like the yeah. way that they they work out all of their kind of, like second voice problems are problems they won't talk about because they should be business only after having this. I love in that scene where he's giving her that dance, how he starts checking the build of the furniture. One, because that's his passion is making furniture. But two, he's like, 
we're about to do some crazy things on here. I just have to check the structural integrity of all of your furniture. <laughs> and and Mike just like is how a, Mike quickly is a he does it too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he goes to that, like, the, the partition bookshelf. Like, the, the thing behind me, you should not dance on someone on this. I've already knocked this over. But she, you know, living on, like, Miami Beach or wherever she is, like... I can't believe the way she calls his bluff about the $60,000 for a dance, too. That, to me, is hot. Maybe that says more about me than I should say on here. But if anything, I, I, huh, the first one or this one? I like the first one. I think it's very successful at a lot of the kind of stealth, subversive political ideas that it has. I just think it's very different tonally from everything that would follow after and that these two films the latter two films are are a lot more invigorating and interesting like hard left turn from the first one to where they're more exciting because i don't see movies like this like these two and even though i might like the first one more than this so that would make this one my least favorite it's just it's exciting to see this kind of narrative it is literally let's put on a show and it's mm-hmm. made by one of the most confident filmmakers working right now someone who is so assured in his filmmaking he can pop these things out five a year if he had the money to do so i think you yeah. would well and i mean it's interesting that this is like not only like this is the one movie he put out this year but in addition yeah. to this he also put out two different tv series and like has a movie that's playing at Sundance in like two months. Like he's very dude, busy on top of watching uh, what a retirement. the killer 100 times. We're going to talk about the killer, by the way, in the context of this film, I think. Oh, oh my good. God. Good. You just do it. Yeah. Let's yeah. do it. I that, that's, that's what I thought of instantly. And maybe it's just because I've seen the killer to relatively recently and it's been on my mind for end of your discussions, but the, the Mike, cater waitering at the billionaire's whale what is that a whale benefit or something that she I think so, yeah it's a 30 rock bit yeah mixandra is an interesting character because she she definitely scans as this like the the movie calls her out on the type of person that she the archetype that she's falling into the what do they call her the queen of the first act right like the, yeah. Yeah. the dilettante the, the woman who has so too much money and too many interests and is sort of spreading herself around and trying to do too many things and sort of dipping her toe into everything, but never really fully committing. And like, you can tell that the whale foundation or whatever is just one piece of that. But the fact that Mike's sort of at a very low point compared to where he was at in, at the end of two, when he at least, you know, his business might not have been thriving, but he at least had a business right in, in XSL. He was doing what he loved here. He's kind of at his low point. There's just something about the way that this film approaches wealth and post wealth inequality and post COVID post recession America, you know, to just put me instantly in mind of, you know, that the assassin walking into the defunct WeWork space in the beginning of the killer. Like it's just, again, the films share almost nothing. <laughs> Maybe maybe some stylistic, a few stylistic quirks, but they shared almost nothing. But there is that like thread of we have a couple of our great sort of elder statesman tours, American auteurs commenting on where we're at 
post-Trump or something. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm talking out my thoughts here, but am no, I crazy? No, am I crazy? Is no. there is there a correspondence there? I thought about post-COVID. Well, I mean, po- we'll never be post-COVID. Anyway, uh, that's fun. I thought about it because of the the way these characters feel isolated and and how few of them are. So that's like a production thing, but it also, it feels very different from the first two, which are ensemble pieces. And especially the second one, it's like a Robert Altman musical is what it feels like to not, me. Not just ensemble pieces, but scenes, so many scenes involve putting those men into the same physical space and having them moving right. around, the blocking yeah. of having them in these tight dressing rooms or in the camper or whatever. Like that is part of it. And here Mike is alone. He's only yeah. in the, he's own, he's not even in the same shot unless you count a shot where we're looking over his shoulder at the zoom call where he's talking to yeah. his buds. Well, know? and to the degree that he's like actively avoiding them too. Like he's not taking their calls. He's like, he chooses not to take Tito's call at the party. He's not answering the phone from like big Dick Richie later on. Like he's fully just like, not like he he's, he's trying to be out of it, trying to fully isolate himself but instead like kind of gets pulled back in by the tractor beam. Yeah. And, and when he slams shut his, his zoom call that he's on because Max enters the room, it's yeah. Even like Max feels isolated because, you know, she's kind of put out of this relationship, this marriage that she's in. And, and even her daughter seems to have like, her own sort of isolated life and the only connection they have is their butler who was played by who who is the butler because dude is great and i love dude and what one of my favorite parts in this is when he is covering the daughter's eyes during like half the performance and there's a whole narrative there about what she's allowed to see and not the part where mike finally works himself into the show and it's raining on the stage it just reeks of late period step up well appropriately so for channing tatum i think but it ages it in a way that is so specific specific to my age group that i feel kind of red when i watch it and i'm like that's not sexy that's not cute but everything that worked for me in magic mike xxl i'm worried now that tiktok has gotten into my brain and worked little holes into it and now magic mike xxl won't work for me i don't think that's going to be the case no i don't think that'll having just revisited it since its original release i'd noticed things different things i think for the first time i was you know i'm a straight dude but i was still sort of swept up by the kitschy dazzle and let's go on a road trip but also let's put on a show momentum of xxl but the second time i noticed a lot different things maybe it's just that i'm a little bit older and or whatever but i think the thing that the the correspondence between last dance and xxl for me is not so much thematically or story it's visual it's i feel like i mean josh you've talked about how magic mike the first film feels like a refugee from an older Soderbergh era. And I swear to God, you could put a still frame of Magic Mike and a still frame of Contagion on the film. Um, and if there weren't visible actors on screen, I defy you to tell me which one is which because they both have that horrible jaundice, like Soderbergh at his lowest. I think side effects had the same sort of visual scheme yeah. a lot. Like Soderbergh in his like sort of pre-retirement lowest point and i I don't want to project psychology i don't want to psychoanalyze the guy i'm just saying like the films he made in that era are dark um 
the bleak films. And then XSL kind of comes out of nowhere and is almost like Michael Bayish in its like hyper crisp garishness. Maybe a little bit of Hermione Corinne. I don't know which where, where you want. There, there's a, a a modernism or or it's hyper contemporary mm-hmm. to it, and a care with every, especially with the digital photography. Mm-hmm. It's been so hard to achieve a kind of digital beauty, but that is one of that film to me is one of the hallmarks of that, along with like Miami Vice. The correspondence I see is visual. That Last Dance is a great looking film. And it's yeah. great looking. It feels like a lot of the lessons that Soderbergh learned as, you know, again, we've said he's not the, formally the director of the second one, but he was cinematographer for all three. And it feels like, I think back to XXL, for example, in that sort of middle sequence, it's almost like the film is on idle briefly where they, they go to Savannah to Jada Pinkett Smith's like weird salon strip club. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it, but it's lit it's a lot of black clientele, a lot of black dancers, and it's lit in this beautiful red and blue lights. Everybody's kind of violet. And there's a lot of that violet lighting in this film as well, which I feel like it's almost like Soderbergh discovered he had to learn how to light black people properly <laughs> in XSL. And in doing so, he realized, wow, blue and red lighting was really awesome looking for pretty much everything. So I'm going to use a heck of a lot of it <laughs> in Last Dance. I do like the Flight of Fancy and Last Dance that recalls XXL the most, which is the dance on the double-decker bus to convince the zoning person that the Radigan can reopen. And what they do is tenfold of the dance in the convenience store. Yeah. I mean, you can't outdo the dance in the convenience store because it it does feel so fresh and like naturally comes out. And, and this, of course, is like a big production on a double it's a tiktok bus. dance is what it is it's, we're gonna <laughs> yeah. we're gonna hyper choreograph something ahead i mean even the way it's framed even the way it's framed it looks like a viral because video it, it's centered video. Yeah. yeah because it does have that narrow center yeah vertical yeah. oh my god you got me it's Sorry. a funny tiktok dance well and, and in that same kind of thing i like that it also kind of has that oceans 11 feel of like all of the different dancers that like are tailing yeah. her basically watching her moves kind of like you know gathering all of this intel on her the way like they task matt damon to follow terry benedict in oceans 11 and like it, it just it for like for like that like 10 minute chunk it feels like a little mini oceans 11 like heist which i think is just delightful just just speaking about that sort of last section i do like in sort of the whole production element of it all the way it brings in the the, the female lead of isabella ascendant who i believe the character's name is Hannah, but I'm going to double check that before I say that again. I like that it sort of brings her in as kind of the like lens through which to project this show and like make her like an active participant the way that like we have like a Jada Pinkett Smith or the way that we have like an Andy McDowell in XXL. Like I think that's one of like the key things about these movies is that like you have to have like a well-developed, like a, a handful of well-developed women around it for any of this to really work or to really make a lot of sense to like a broader well, audience, which I think is kind of an interesting dealie. And that's a point in remaking the show is to give it back to the female audience, right? And that's the whole idea. And how much of it is is about not even empowering one gender over the other, but having a communication about the experience that you want to have and being able to 
say, I can do this for you, or I want this of you and making that negotiation in real time. Like that is what's so sexy about it is how empowering it is for everyone and giving everyone a say in it. And, you know, and these guys who are able to do fucking acrobatics with a body, with their own bodies and the, the immense talents that they are, but being able to utilize that and not making it like a subordinate or dominant relationship, I think is really key to a lot of these things working. Consent is sexy, y'all. <laughs> I hate the way I said that. I won't cut it out, though. <laughs> I do feel like the part that maybe I have the greatest reservation of this is, again, this being a sort of Mike being where he is financially and the whole thing sort of being presented as a sort of fairy tale for him. You know, like he gets to be swept off to Europe. And we can argue back and forth. Well, Mixandra is basically she's not destitute but she doesn't have the money that she had at the beginning of the movie by the end she's basically decided it's not worth being tethered to the husband and his family so we, we sort of get that we implied epilogue that they're gonna have to go out that mixandra and and mike are gonna have to go out and try to make a living on their own but it does feel a little weird to me that this is a movie whose arc is about partly about the self-actualization of a billionaire like she could very easily use her wealth and status and the relationship of I'm basically your employer here to sort of bigfoot him. But he does consistently like push back every time she tries to like bigfoot him or make an autocratic decision about what the play is or is not going to be or what the relationship is going to be like. He asserts himself cons consistently and, and, but, and, but never in a dickish way. You know, he's just saying, Hey, this is this is what I see as the person over here who's involved in this. But it does sort of play as a fairy tale to me. It's sort of wish fulfillment. Mike gets to not just be a dancer; he gets to be a creator in a true sense. Mm -hmm. Like he gets to the whole thing is his vision in the way that he's never had the opportunity to to craft something personally from top to bottom according to his own vision. And you know, and then and he gets the girl. So like, it, I don't know. It, it feels like, and I don't mean that it like necessarily negates the previous two films at all, but it does feel like sort of the fairy tale ending to the trilogy. I think to a degree that fairy tale ending is fine, but like I, I sort of wanted a little bit more from it. I wanted to maybe have a coda where we sort of better understand like if if this is the end of all of this, if this is the end of the Magic Mike saga, which I have to imagine it is. Soderbergh doesn't strike me as someone who wants to kind of keep going back to these wells more than maybe one or two times i kind of wanted a little bit more resolution there like maybe maybe something that brings us back to the kings of tampa that sort of ensemble element is sorely missed at least from my end just in terms of in terms of knocks at the film like i sort i sort of yearn for more of that ensemble at least may even in small doses of of you know big dick richie and tito and and tarzan and and you know and ken and all those guys i i think it might have overstepped the film it probably it probably would be like a hat on a hat but like even even like a short coda at the end to sort of be like you know cap it off would have been nice when i think about what he they're all trying to achieve with this film i don't know that it's of the same idea behind the first two which are the ensemble pieces which are like about showing a community this one feels very much to me as about the negotiation between two people and how they form a relationship. 
even though the stakes feel relatively small in that relationship, because it's very obvious from the beginning that there's no real reason why they couldn't be together. But what they decide is to work out their relationship through this artistic endeavor. I like that Mike in this does not know how to direct. He does not know how to make a narrative piece or even like a cohesive piece around this. And what he does is it ends up ceding a lot of control to his cast. He makes it this very collaborative process. So to me, it does feel like very similar to what Soderbergh talks about is his process. Not that it's necessarily a story, but that it is utilizing the strengths of the people around you so that you can you know, make a piece that is born of yourself, but also born of the community that you create around yourself. And I guess it's not as pronounced in this film, and that's my objection to it, but it does feel very coming back from isolation, coming back from the pandemic, and trying to figure out how to be a fucking person again with other people. That's a good point. So yeah. Yeah. that to me, like that is the thing that I latch on to in this, even when I know there are like much greater joys that can be had out of a Magic Mike movie. I still appreciate it on the somewhat modest level. And you can really tell some of this is budgetary too. They're like, Soderbergh, all right. You and Channing can go make your dumb little stripper movie again, but you're going to get half the budget, even the first one or something like that. And therefore, like, you're not going to be able to pay Matt Bomer and, and Matthew McConaughey and like all of these people. Like, think about scaling it back to where you can have two leads. I think ultimately, I I don't know that I'll be going back to this one like in the way that I go back to Magic Mike XXL, which is about once a year. <laughs> it's like an antidepressant. Like I have yeah. Zodiac, Carol, Magic Mike XXL. Like I have a few antidepressants. Persona, I'm a weird guy. Those those are the things that make me very happy. Well, admittedly, no comfort films. Yes, yes. XXL is actually the one that I understand the most because it's... <laughs> It's the Paddington 2 of stripper movies. Come on. It is. It is. <laughs> Everyone got mad at me Perfect. for saying that five years ago. It's so good. And it is it that. Is, yes, it, because it is a fucking hit of dopamine again and again and again until the very end. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Like, I will even tolerate that song because the very, like, last shots of XXL are so perfect to me. Anyway, yeah, we'll have to do, like, a proper XXL minute by minute. <laughs> <laughs> but I understand, again, I'm sort of contrasting the three. Uh, last Dance feels like the, and they live happily ever after, Mike and his... <laughs> and his lady friend who's gonna yeah. presumably gonna lose her money i don't know that's what it's implied i guess the first one ends on such a down note even though mike ends up with the girl so to speak at the end of the first film you know we've pretty much lost the kid along the way and everything has kind of fell apart and gone to shit yeah it has a false the happy ending. Yeah. it's the bleak yeah. end it's the bleak ending whereas xsl has a happy ending but 
and I don't want to get, I don't want to intellectualize by my Magic Mike XXL, but let's, but hey, this feels like the best place to do it. There's something about the end of XXL where they're all, it's it's an Ocean's Eleven callback, first of all, which mm-hmm. these guys standing sort of in a row on the boardwalk at Myrtle Beach. We don't really see what they're looking at. I get the impression they're looking at fireworks off the, yeah. off the beat, off the coast. You know, they're in Murder Beach, not exactly the most glamorous city in America. <laughs> it's a scuzzy Florida city, right? But they've he, Mike and his bros have just put on like the best show of their lives. They know it. They know it. They know that what they've done is something special. They're sort of in the afterglow. Uh, for tonight, Mike has a girl <laughs> on his arm. Like it's a transient joy, but it's a genuine joy. The joy of like Josh was saying of of community. And I think about like. As I'm watching the end of again, the first time I just sort of swept along and said, what a great time. And this time I'm watching it, I'm getting all like 40-something melancholy. I'm go- I'm thinking of Thoreau and Whitman at the end of Magic Mike XXL and about how like the beauty of the moment, the joy, the happiness yeah. you found in the moment is really where it's at. Not And so much of the, the first film is about like hustle and the American dream as a, as a hustle, as a way to get ahead, as a way to claw, claw, claw where you can. And the, the and the second ending of XL XL almost feels like a rejoinder to that to saying, yes, you have to work and it, it, but there's pleasure to be had in community. There's pleasure to be had in creation. There's pleasure to be had in performance. It might be fleeting, but it is genuine happiness. Whereas the third film, I feel like, ends with, with the key to success is getting a billionaire British lady who who's into you to, to sort of sponsor you. But so I don't like again. So maybe that's my only reservation about the third film is that 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 how how it conflicts with what everything that felt good about the ending of the second one but yeah but in the I sense that. that but in the sense that mike losing his furniture company people would say that's like a downer start but it absolutely stood in my mind mike losing the company absolutely dovetails with the end of the second movie because the end of the second mm-hmm. movie is about eat drink and be merry tonight because we don't know what's coming tomorrow well, and, and the degree to which everyone else in that ensemble is dealing with the exact same issue. Like everyone, yeah. everyone is feeling that pain. I mean, Richie's cleaning pools. Like, you know, <laughs> Tito has his frozen yogurt business. Ken is just kind of a Reiki healer. Like <laughs> none of them are doing the things that like actually make them happy. They're all like, you know, dreaming about get rich quick schemes. Like they're condiments or, you know, which is such such a very, such a good, weird little aside from Joe Manganiello, who is quietly kind of the mvp of xxl to me like just his facial expressions alone like make that movie <laughs> and yeah but I, I i i agree i think that's that is that fully the, the the we we found happiness in the moment while we are all continuing to struggle in our everyday lives and finding a way to you know do the things that make us happy in spite of everything that seems to be stacked against us which i i agree is is fully like the the best uh, the best of all three of these endings in in my opinion I always thought there was a bit of melancholy in that and the way that they actually achieved their dreams is with what they know best, which is dancing, and that maybe they can't actually achieve them. The only way to achieve them is some sort of artistic expression of the thing. And so there's like a a gulf between what you can do and what you can dream about. Well, and and there's also we make compromises. There's a refutation of like the hyper monetization Mm-hmm. everything i mean oh in that way xl was almost a little ahead of the curve the idea that maybe we shouldn't be taking you know we shouldn't be trying to carve out a viable like high high standard of living professional job from something that makes us happy maybe that's just setting us up for, for failure i don't know 
We want another thing. one. Would you want another no. one? No, I don't want another one. I'm good. I say that. What's, what's what's your stipulation? But if they offer me another one, I'm there. Like I don't oh, yeah. want it, but give it to me. Sure. <laughs> I I didn't ask for it, but I but I will gladly take it if you want to do it. If you feel like there's <laughs> you know there's more to say, if there's meat still on that bone, go for it. Yeah. I feel like I don't think we need it, but I wouldn't count. I wouldn't put bunny on it not happening. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Because I feel like until Soderbergh like <laughs> is in a wheelchair and not being able to make movies anymore, and Chad obtaining is has my back pain, I feel like we won't be, be at a place where it's impossible. So until that time comes, Magic Mike Four, whatever we want to call it, is yeah, is not in is not completely written off as a possibility. Magic Mike Magic returns. Mike rides the pony again. <gasps> rides again is so perfect yeah. Yeah, rides again oh i feel God. like if, if they're gonna do rides a fourth again. one magic mike rides again is a pretty good pretty good that is pull. a good that is a good one i think anything is possible with soderbergh and that was sort of going to be my closing thought was like yeah. i have always loved that about his filmography i've loved that about like just the way he's approached making films i talked about earlier his new one called presence is apparently like a horror thriller genre thing yeah, it looks and, like a home invasion movie, right? Yeah, it's something which like I'm that. So interested in that. Well, and then but I so, started thinking how he's like a genre guy. He's like, I want to work in every genre, and the closest he's come to something like that is Unsane. But Unsane mm-hmm. is still a very like Soderbergh doing his conspiracy thriller thing, but on yeah. a different level. But well, and, and I, some formal formal experiment. Unsane was also yes. like like High Flying Bird. I feel like he was right, also about the that iPhone, iPhone and... formal experimentation. But I mean. Unsane, but Kimmy's also kind of Kimmy? already a Kimmy's home invasion thriller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of. Yeah. I mean, Kimmy's more that. Kimmy's more like, what? What does the conversation look like in the age of Alexa? Yeah, yeah. But when my rice yeah. cooker can talk to me, what does what? Yeah. What, what, what's a Francis Ford Coppola book? Kimmy look? underrated. Yeah. Good no movie. one talk good about movie. Kimmy. Kimmy good. Yeah. Kimmy Hive, we ride. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said that. Like sabotage is the most overused, like beast, like Beastie Boy cut, like almost one of the most overused pop songs in general in any movie, and I don't want to hear it anymore. And when that fucking sabotage song came on, it gave me, I'm like, don't care, yes, love it, love it. Good, good sabotage, good elastica drop for the credits in that movie. Like, honestly, Kimmy rocks. I love Kimmy. Um, good, but Rita so, Wilson. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And, and and Buzz from Home Alone, who is who is canceled for reasons we don't need to go into, but he's also surprisingly good in that movie. I don't um, like the way you have me googling things. I, I, I'm I'm an I am just a fount of knowledge that doesn't matter. But so so I I I, I spoke with Steven Soderbergh back in August this year on on the anniversary of King of the Hill, which was shot here in St. Louis, and he closed out our conversation with this quote, which I think kind of gets it sort of why we find all of his different approaches so interesting in that he said, you know, I like the idea that somebody who is going to see something that I've done sits down, the lights go down, and they're very aware of the fact that they don't have any idea of what's coming next. And I think that's what continues to excite us about someone who works at such a prolific clip as Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, welcome back, Sodi. <laughs> We're glad to have you back from your yeah. one-year retirement. All right, every episode we end with one more thing. That's one thing we've been enjoying since our previous episode. And I've got a surprise for everyone, but we're going to let Max go first. Because you're our guest. Max, what's something you've been enjoying 
eating, reading, smelling, alphabetizing, as Andrew loves to point out. <laughs> well, I mean, I have not I've not reorganized my record collection in a minute, so it's not going to be that. But this is kind of a twofer, I guess, because they're, they're kind of two things that sort of go hand in hand. I caught a movie the day before we recorded this called The Delinquents. Uh, it's a movie released right now uh, by a guy named Rodrigo Moreno. It's a movie from Argentina. But it's a three-hour long, like, bank heist slash, like, romance comedy amalgam. And it's this weird kind of slow cinema heist thing. And I, I, I say heist thing because, like, that's maybe, like, a sliver of what it's actually going for. But it kind of falls down these narrative side streets that I really enjoy. Well, also the premise of it is ostensibly like the most George Costanza idea ever of the perfect crime. And it is quietly very, explain. very funny. You have to, you have to explain oh, that. Yeah. I'm aware, so, I'm aware of the film, but I don't know what that means. So uh, the, the the crime at the at the heart of the film, it's not really a spoiler. This happens within like the first 20 minutes of the movie. Uh, a guy who works at a bank steals enough money for he basically does the calculations for like how much money will I make if I work this job for 25 years and then doubles that and steals that amount of money and he's like okay he talks to his coworker who wasn't there that day he's like all right I need you to hold on to the money I'm gonna turn myself in I'm gonna go to prison for like three years tops and then when I get out we split the money neither of us has to work ever again and that feels like the most George Costanza idea of like yeah it's a perfect <laughs> crime like I could I could I could be in jail for three years that's no problem. It does. And it's the easiest way out of anything. Which which is so funny where it's like, you know, like you could, you know, you know, sell your soul for 25 years or, you know, like watch this over for me for like three years. But then like there's this interesting like there's like he's in jail and like there are some like things that he wasn't expecting there. There there's this whole interesting like countryside like diversion, which in the film, which kind of snakes its way back in, in interesting ways. And just in addition to all of that. It has it has jokes to it. It is very funny and like maybe kind of a Roy Anderson sort of way, in in like kind of absurd like almost Kafka esque humor. And then like there are some really simple camera tricks that really I think work and are interesting uses of stuff like split screen that I don't see used terribly often outside of like an Alex Ross Perry movie or something like. And there there is at least one like one camera choice late in the film that actually made me gasp and rewind, which is not a thing that happens terribly often, uh, where I was just like, that's cool. I can't, I that's I, I just love the way that you did that. So there's that. It's this kind of discursive heist story. But in doing that, I've also been reading Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad and The Candy House, which I just finished today, which are also these kind of interesting interconnected stories that sort of weave together these, you know, interesting networks of people and the way they're connected to each other that I think lines up really well with the delinquents and kind of was very much on my brain while I was watching it. So those two, those two together. Very I've read good. Goon Delinquent. Squad. Is, Goon, Goon Squad is awesome. It's an awesome book. Goon Squad rules. If you like Goon Squad, you should check out the Candy House because it is basically a sequel. Okay. Cool. Candy House is the new one, right? Yeah, it came out last year. Delinquents is among the 10 films I will be watching in the next two weeks to properly cut off 2023 before <laughs> we get into our top 10 business of the year and mm -hmm. that is on the list it, it played at the webster university film series not too long ago well, only one show but i know that our friend pete is a big fan of it too and, and next that's, that's what put it on my radar too was seeing it at webster and realized i couldn't make series. it for that yeah 
All right. Well, where can people find you online? Yes. So I am just at Max Havy, really anywhere you can find me, Twitter slash X, Blue Sky. I'm over at Blue Sky at, at Max Havy, Letterboxd, Instagram, all the places. I, I'm just at Max Havy, one word. Very cool. Andrew, everyone's in suspense for my surprise, but you get to go next. <laughs> okay. Well, I've been catching up with the television series. Yes. No. no. I've been telling up with the television series Fargo, trying to get myself caught up to watch the new season when it's finally full. I don't really watch TV shows like week to week. I kind of wait till they're all done and then do them. So I'm kind of waiting till the fifth season is finished and then I'm going to But in preparation for that, I've been going back and watching the old the, the old previous seasons of Fargo, rewatching them, which made me start thinking about Fargo and wanting to rewatch Fargo <laughs> in general. Which got me thinking about a movie that I haven't thought about in a while, um, but and I wanted to revisit it. So this is going to be a weird one more thing because I can't really recommend an easy way to access this, which is part of my complaint. So there's a film that came out in 2014 called Kumiko the Treasure Hunter, um, which oh, yeah. I don't I haven't heard. I don't heard a lot of people discussing it. I think part of the reason it's gone to ground is because it was distributed by a company called Ampl- Amplify, which doesn't really have any good digital distribution platforms for the few films that they released in the 2010s so it's kind of gone into this forbidden zone uh you can still buy blu-ray copies of it for like 10 bucks so it's it's accessible just not streaming unfortunately if you have never heard of this movie this is directed by the indie film directors david and nathan zellner and it's i don't even know how to describe it it's so it kind of requires you to have seen fargo first i believe it's one of the few films where i feel like you do need to see the film that is being referenced first but it plays as a companion piece slash metatextual fairy tale slash movie about movies about Fargo set part half in Japan and half in around in and around Brainerd and the other sort of towns and environments are, that were featured in Fargo. It's about a woman, 30-ish year old woman, played by the incredible Rico Kikuchi, who most American audiences are probably most familiar with from Babel. She's this sort of socially maladjusted misanthropic woman who becomes delusionally obsessed with the movie Fargo based on her discovery of an old VHS copy of the film. And she becomes somehow convinced that the events in the film are real, that it's some kind of document or document documentary of something that really happened. And she becomes convinced that she can go find the money that was buried by the fence by Carl Showalter in the movie if she can just get to the United States and get to Minnesota to find it. And it becomes this sort of deranged, yet somehow sweet and deeply sad odyssey of this woman to go across the world to find this thing, which is definitely not there. <laughs> I, if, if that description, if you like Fargo and that description makes you excited, then absolutely spend $10 blindly to get the Blu-ray of this movie from Amazon. It is an incredible film. I I haven't heard any hardly anybody talk about it. I haven't heard seen the Zellners do much other than pop up as actors in other indie films for here and there. But it's a film that I'm I'm every time I remember it and I revisit it, I personally own it. And every time I revisit it, I get excited by it all over again. I'm like, it's this like great hidden movie of the 2010s that nobody talks about. So highly recommended, even if you especially if you are a fan of Fargo and the Coens in general, go into it blind and just sort of see where it takes you. A magical film. I don't say that about a lot of about a, a lot of films. It's a magical film. I was a fan of their second film, Damsel, mm-hmm. 
with oh yeah Moskowska oh. and Robert Pattinson mm-hmm. that was like one long joke about westerns <laughs> that really worked for me but I had never seen anyone else ever talk about it <laughs> that's an, um, it's an odd film that, I don't I still don't know how I feel about damsel it's an odd film to that extent I have also ever seen Kamiko the treasure hunter I feel like it's the film that's lived the longest on my letterbox watch list have I talked about were... it on the have I talked about it on the pod before it's like one of my I don't personal think so. favorites okay but while you were you were talking about it I ordered it Okay, I'm gonna do it. All right, I'm gonna so, do it. So recommendation accepted. Yes, I'm, I'm yes. also ordering this after we're done recording here. Like I, I, <laughs> a, a long-standing one that I didn't realize wasn't streaming anywhere. It's not like, streaming I anywhere. Like, I was yeah. like, no. I did you see Max and I? We both picked our phones up and we were probably on Just Watch or something. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yep, I also went to like, Just Watch. No, immediately. he just doesn't know how to find it. Of course he does. <laughs> no, I, I'm spoiled. I I tend to like if I see a movie in theaters that really really catches my attention especially i don't know this so, so much anymore but especially in like the 2010s i would just buy it immediately yeah. Read it yeah when it was available so I, I have some weird i ended up with some weird movies like that and tarsim sings the fall that like have Ooh. since become collector's items because they're they haven't been reissued they're not and streaming this is why physical media physical media blah 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 the way to go mm-hmm. right 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 if you want to find me, you can find me at AY76 on Letterbox and at thetakeup.com. As Josh says, we will probably be doing a big expected annual best of 2023 piece sometime in probably early January, first week of January, I think. So look for that from Josh and Kayla and I. Josh, what is your one more thing? My one more thing is a video game. <gasps> Wait a minute. That's my, that's supposed to be my thing I've... here. I've played about one hour of a video game and I'm ready to talk about it. All right. I I don't have the lexicon. Like I don't have the terms to tell you what how this game works. Mm-hmm. So I'll just describe the gameplay and you can tell me if there's a word for that. But it looks like, and the narrative of it, very similar to the works of Junji Ito, the, the writer and graphic novelist, however you want to say that. So there, it's like extreme folk body horror, Japanese body horror. And you might know him from like, what's the one, Uzumaki, the one about mm-hmm. all the spirals and like yeah. monoculture taking over. But this is a video game that plays like, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. Like well, What is it? Search- what's the title? Oh, oh, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. It's called World of Horror. And mm. it, the look of it is very that, but also like a one bit comic book panels. Um, and it's all about this kind of like creeping cult coming into this Japanese community. And you are playing someone who's trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. So you have like all of these little missions. The one that I'm in is the easiest where I'm exploring a school trying to collect materials to like redo this ritual. And I keep getting into battles that are very like D and D where I have to, you know, like try for dexterity and stuff. (laughs) Well, I'm looking at this on steam right now. This is very much of a piece. This is very clearly set up as an homage to a certain type of Japanese point and click adventure text, text adventure and point and click adventure combo. 
with like the with the added spin of like retro Apple One graphics, like the black and white pixelated graphics. It's really fun because you can customize it in some ways with like color schemes. And so that gets me going. <laughs> but the graphics are incredible because of what they can achieve in this one or two bit version, whichever you play. But the the stories are so reminiscent of Ito, who I'm like such a huge fan of and I'm not like a huge comics person but that is one artist who I I genuinely love and I think we have everything that's been published in North America here in this household by him <laughs> so because I'm like oh this looks tangentially related to that I'm gonna pick up my Wii my Wii I still call it a Wii my Switch that has not <laughs> been turned on in three years. I call it a week. It's here in my bag, too. I pulled it out at breakfast this morning and everyone had a good laugh because it was like, what the fuck? What do you got in that bag, Mary Poppins? Um, anyway, so it was called World of Horror. I think you can get you can get it on Steam uh, for PC. It's like 20 bucks. You can get it on PS5, all major platforms. So, yeah, people send me, you know, hints and tricks and little things to help me actually do good in it video games i know how to do them and you can do that at crispy retinas on instagram letterboxd but you can find all of us at the takeup.com that's a take slash up.com the takeup stl all right max thank you so much for joining us that's max havy st louis magazine please come back and oh yeah and not just for XXL talk, even though we did get quite a bit of that in here. Yes. Yeah. Tr tr truly anytime. I mean, like I could talk about XXL forever. Like there was a period in 2017 <laughs> to 2018 where I had a bad habit of cornering people at parties and just talking at them about it. So this is a much more I conducive people, space for that. Uh, we'll be doing Evil Dead Rise on the next episode. We'll be talking about our mommy issues, mm. our fear of the living dead, all this fun stuff. Maybe some Buster Keaton. Hmm, interesting. So if you haven't seen it, uh, catch up with But catch up with it with us. <laughs> Thank you to Jessica Pierce, our editor, Caleb McCullough, social media partners at Cinema St. Louis or at cinemastlouis.org and our theme music by AMP. I'm not going to sing this time. I, I, I don't know what else to say. What does she say? Mommy's with the maggots now. Okay.